Welcome to the Bagwell Center podcast. This podcast features lectures and symposia hosted by the Bagwell Center for the Study of Markets and Economic Opportunity at Kennesaw State University. The Bagwell Center's mission is to provide a platform for an interdisciplinary study of the importance of markets and economic institutions in regard to resource allocation, entrepreneurial activity, economic prosperity, and improved human welfare. Through extracurricular outreach activities such as guest lectures, film screenings, workshops, fellowships, and reading groups, the Bagwell Center places an emphasis on educating students about the foundations of market institutions and examining the related impact of government policy in a mixed economy. For more information about the Bagwell Center and its programs, please visit coles.kennesaw.edu slash econop. Welcome, everyone. Uh, my name is Timothy Matthews. I'm a professor of economics here at Kennesaw State and the director of our Bagwell Center for the Study of Markets and Economic Opportunity, which is the sponsor for today's event. Uh, today's guest speaker is Dr. Matthew Mitchell. He's a senior research fellow and director of the Equal Liberty Initiative at the Mercatus Center at George Mason University in Virginia. He has a BS in economics and BA in political science from Arizona State University, along with uh, graduate degrees, both an MA and PhD in economics from George Mason University. His area of expertise is public choice economics with an emphasis on the economics of government favoritism. He has published in numerous peer-reviewed academic journals, such as the Review of Austrian Economics, the Independent Review, and the Review of Regional Studies. Dr. Mitchell's research has been featured in numerous national media outlets, including the New York Times, the Wall Street Journal, the Washington Post, NPR, and C-SPAN. Today, he will be giving a talk titled, How Regulations Protect Firms from Competition. So Matthew, welcome virtually to Kennesaw State University's Bagwell Center. It's a pleasure to have you. Thank you so much. Uh, it's a pleasure to chat with you all today. I'm looking forward to the conversation. Uh, as I uh, we mentioned at the beginning, uh, I want you all to feel free to interrupt as we're going along. You can uh, use the chat box to send any clarifying questions if you have them, and uh, we'll. I, I want to make sure that this is a you know a, a back and forth conversation, not just me uh, completely lecturing. Um, so the title of the talk is "How Regulations Protect Firms from Competition," and in part, what I want to try to uh, provoke with that that title is the uh, idea that regulations don't exactly work the way we all think they do. Uh, most of us have this conception, uh, particularly when we first uh, start looking at this stuff, that uh, you know regulations protect us as consumers, not firms. Um, but that's really not what the evidence suggests, and so I want to walk through some of that evidence. So, um, so to begin with, uh, I think a lot of us have somewhat of a caricatured idea of regulation, and sometimes it's caricatured uh, both, it can be caricatured in a negative sense or in a positive sense. So on the negative sense, uh, you know, we see these stories like a five-year-old girl fined $200 for selling lemonade, or a Florida man who's 90 years old is charged for uh, with a with a misdemeanor for feeding homeless people, or a North Carolina woman arrested for saving animals. Um, you know, these are sort of silly examples where regulations run amok. Um, but in many ways, these sort of silly examples are, are memorable, but not necessarily the most important aspects about regulation. Um, 
what I want to try to do is substitute those silly examples of regulations run amok with a more scientific view of it. So uh, here's a colleague, uh, Patrick McLaughlin. He's actually a, a rather tall man. He's a, he's uh, about six foot two. He's standing in front of uh, all the the federal code of federal regula regulations. So this represents every single rule uh, promulgated by the federal government. Um, and his work and others have recently sort of revolutionized a the scientific understanding of regulation. So the way we used to measure uh, regulation, and I, I should note, by the way, it's still very crude the way we measure regulation, but it's less crude than it used to be. So um, a few years ago, the, the uh, really the best way that you could try to get some sort of a quantitative measure of regulation was simply to look at the number of words in the in the Code of Federal um, uh, Regulations. So the, the, the uh, this is a graph of the of the number of words in the Code of Federal Regulations from 1970 onward. Um, the typical human speaking at a typical uh, pace, it would take if they tried to read the code, it would take them three years, 117 days and 10 hours to get through the entire code. Um, what more recently, what my colleague Patrick and others have done is not just to try to count the number of words, but to use computer machine algorithms that attempt to count the number of restrictions. So a restriction is a word like shall or must or may not. That gets, again, it's still crude, but it gets at a much more uh, sophisticated understanding of, uh, of regulations because you could have, you know, 20 pages that don't say really impose any kind of a restriction on the public. But if you have, you know, one one page that has a list of 30, 40, 50 restrictions on our activities, that can have a much greater impact in terms of our ability to go about our lives. So by their current um, count, there are over 1 million uh, 78,000 restrictions in the Code of Federal uh, Regulations. Now, one of the things that they're able to do is associate each of those types of restrictions with other types of language that, that um, connotes different types of industries. So, for example, if you have a whole lot of language around, uh, you know, something very technical like a um, uh, uh, that might be involved with uh, a um, power transmission, or you have something related to aviation, or you have something related to um, consumer finance, they can associate uh, the particular aspect of the code with those particular types of industries. And that allows us to get a, a variation in the type of um, regulation and the extent of regulation by industry, and they're able to exploit that to see how differences as regulations rise and fall across industries affect growth rates. So with those estimates, um, they recently published a paper um, that looked at actual GDP, and then they can estimate what potential GDP would be in the absence of all those regulations. Their estimate uh, is that the actual GDP is approximately $13,000 per person lower now than it would be if regulations had stayed at the 1980 level. So the accumulation of regulation over the last uh, 40 years has essentially robbed each and every American of about $13,000 per person per year. Now, all of that is just the cost. What about the benefits? Maybe there are benefits to it. Um, probably the most um, 
widely recognized potential benefit of regulation is the idea that regulation essentially is ensuring private property rights. It could police. It is the um, state's uh, attempt to control fraud um, and deception, and therefore essentially keep us from falling dupes to um, uh, to bad guys. Right. Uh, so this is the type when we we talk about the activities, for example, the Securities and Exchange Commission that is um, supposed to regulate uh, fraud, uh, deception, Ponzi schemes, um, that kind of activity in the financial markets. Uh, essentially, you could you could think about this as uh, government policing uh, property rights. Really, a legitimate function of government going all the way back to uh, you know classical liberals such as uh, uh, John Locke. Um, more recently, there, the idea is that regulation can also serve a public purpose by controlling quality. So um, Elizabeth Warren uh, ha has uh, frequently gives talks in which she um, tells this story a few years ago, several decades ago, actually, uh, she had a defaulty toaster and um, it set on fire and uh, she tried to douse it, and I believe actually her curtains caught on fire. Uh, and her point is we should have rules that control this kind of thing. And in fact, we should perhaps ha have rules that try to control this type of quality problem in other types of markets, such as financial um, markets. So she, through that, uh, she's advocated the creation of the Consumer um, Financial Protection Bureau, for example, uh, which aims at controlling quality in financial markets, just as, uh, say, the FTC, the Federal Trade Commission, uh, polices quality in uh, goods markets. Um, and so a lot of us have this perception that, you know, quality control is essentially kind of like what the FDA does. Uh, that's the aim of it. It's very scientific. Uh, the goal is to ensure that all of us stay safe. That when it turns to the actual mechanisms of regulation, um, it's important to think about what actual tools do regulators have? Well, broadly speaking, they have five tools. Uh, they can control price. They can control entry into an industry. They can control quantity, the number of um, uh, products and services in the entire industry. Uh, they can control operations and they can control purchases. Each one of these has the possibility to uh, increase uh, both uh, both police, uh, de decrease fraud and, and, and um, do the first function of regulation, which is ensure property rights. They also have the potential to increase quality, but as I'm gonna make the case, uh, they can also actually undermine quality. So let's go back to the beginning. So the very first federal regulation was the, the regulatory body was the Interstate Commerce Commission. And it was founded at the uh, latter uh, quarter of the 19th century. And at the time, we actually have some very interesting correspondence from uh, the Attorney General of the United States. He is a railway man, a former railway man, and he wrote a letter to his boss. And in it, we see essentially what the insider's view of the Interstate Commerce Commission is. So what Richard Olney writes is the commission is or can be made of great use to the railroad. It satisfies the popular clamor for a government supervision of the railroads at the same time that that supervision is almost entirely nominal. Furthermore, he said, 
Further, the older such a commission gets to be, the more inclined it will be found to take the business and railroad view of things. The part of wisdom is not to destroy the commission, but to utilize it. So what he is articulating here is what has come to be known as regulatory capture theory, or under some uh, uh, another version of it is the, um, the economic theory of regulation. And the basic idea here is that while regulations may be advocated as a way to help consumers, and the Interstate Commerce Commission was absolutely advocated as a way to help consumers. There was a concern that uh, what people were finding is that there seemed to be higher rates charged for short routes than for long routes. Uh, and this is to some degree, even though this is not what an engineer would predict, you would, you know, an engineer would predict that you would find uh, higher rates on a longer route. Um, it's exactly what an economist would predict because shorter routes tended to have less competition. And so the idea was to, there, there seemed to be some sort of price discrimination and maybe the uh, ICC could stop that. That was the publicly uh, stated purpose. But as you see, the actual railroad people welcomed the commission. And the reason that they welcomed it is because they had spent much of the 19th century attempting to price fix. They had, they had set together several different types of price fixing schemes called pools where they would all agree to charge a higher price to consumers. But these price fixing schemes kept breaking apart. And the reason is if you form a cartel with somebody, they have a very strong incentive to try to undermine the agreement that you've made. And so, you know, you and I, if the market price of, of uh, say, shipping wheat to market is $10, we might agree to price fix at 15. But once we've done that, I have an incentive to go to my customers and say, hey, did you hear my competitor raised his rates to 15? I raised mine too, but I only raised them to 14. Once you find out about that, you then want to undercut me and charge 13, and then I try to undercut you and charge 12, and we're back at 10. That actually happened over and over and over again throughout the 19th centuries. These price fixing schemes kept falling apart. And so what the railroad folks realized is they could actually use the commission as a way to try to uh, enforce their price fixing schemes. Um, and as it turns out over the years, uh, the, the way the Supreme Court has interpreted um, government regulation has actually facilitated that. So you may have heard uh, this famous quote from President Nixon. If you haven't seen the movie Frost v. Nixon, um, it's a really interesting uh, documentary. It, it talks about his uh, 1977 interview with David, the journalist David Frost. And there the president utters uh, a uh, famous line. He says, when the president does it, that means that it is not illegal. Uh, this was sort of the gotcha moment uh, indicating Richard Nixon uh, has a, a very uh, jaundiced and bizarre view of the powers of the presidency. Well, as it turns out, this type of view uh, is not all that dissimilar from the way the Supreme Court has interpreted uh, government-enforced cartels. So in a famous um, decision handed down in 1943 called Parker v. Brown, um, I'm paraphrasing here, but essentially what the Supreme Court court said is uh, when the government does it, it's not a cartel. So if you and I try to price fix, uh, we could potentially go to jail. But if the government organizes a price fixing scheme, it is not, it, it, the government can claim immunity from uh, antitrust laws. It's called, par, it's called Parker immunity or government action immunity. Uh, so as it turns out, uh, what did the Interstate Commerce Commission do? Well, it 
absolutely, Richard Olney was was uh, accurate. Um, it helped railroads enforce price fixing schemes, and it even went so far as to lobby Congress to legalize some of these schemes. This worked for quite a while until the 1920s when um, uh, shipping through other means started to uh, become more popular. So with the invention of the automobile, people started using trucks to, to ship goods and services across, across the country. Uh, so what did they do? Well, naturally, they lobbied Congress to create um, regulations that, that applied to uh, trucking. That worked for quite a while until the 1930s and 40s when people started using planes. And so then what did they do? Well, they lobbied Congress to create the Civil Aeronautics Board, which restricted um, the uh, uh, transportation of um, goods and services via plane. So over and over again, you see what some economists call the dynamics of intervention is essentially, essentially once you create a cartel, the government creates a cartel in one area, you use regulations to create cartels in further areas. Um, over the years, there have now been um, dozens and dozens of case studies of uh, regulations that, that do exactly this. Instead of protecting the public, they actually help cartelize industries and protect particular industry, uh, the firms in those industries. So we, there are case studies of um, um, transmission of electricity, of natural gas, of financial markets, of television and radio, of taxi markets, of pharmaceuticals, of oil. Uh, there have been case studies looking at um, uh, hair braiding uh, industry, uh, uh, light bulb industry, um, opticians, uh, teeth whitening, hospitals, electricians, uh, even veterinarians and plumbers and real estate agents and sanitation workers. Um, all of these show that there are certain times and places when regulations actually protect businesses rather than consumers. So as this uh, research was really starting to take off in the 1970s, uh, there was a paper in 19, I believe it was 1971, in which the authors concluded the verdict is nearly unanimous that economic regulation over rates, entry, mergers, and technology has been anti-competitive and wasteful. Uh, furthermore, our unguided regulatory system undermines the competition and entrenches monopoly at the public's expense. Uh, it was 1974. So uh, this is uh, consumer advocate Ralph Nader and Mark Green. These are two men of the left. Uh, their view is that regulation is often uncom um, uncompetitive. So they're men of the left. At the same time, uh, a free market economist, George Stiegler at the University of Chicago, uh, wrote a very famous paper, uh, the, the central thesis of which is that as a rule, regulation is acquired by the industry and is designed and operated for its benefit. Uh, Stiegler went on to win the Nobel Prize in Economics in part for his explorations of the economics of regulation. So why is it that regulation would end up serving the interests of, of industry rather than consumers? Well, one way to think about it is like any public policy, regulations uh, create benefits and, create, and they create costs. And sometimes those benefits are um, enjoyed by a, a particular group and sometimes the costs are enjoyed by a separate group. The key here is to see which of these two groups is more numerous. Anytime you have a situation where you, the government can create costs that are highly dispersed while the benefits are highly concentrated, that is, there are more people that, that bear the cost than bear the benefits, you have this strange, weird political uh, dynamic where actually those who enjoy the benefits can 
impose greater uh, uh, have greater weight in uh, the political market. And the reason for that is that when there are lots and lots of people involved, it's very hard to get them politically uh, active. So, uh, you know, if you have a regulation that creates costs for consumers and there's, you know, 311 million consumers, those consumers are just not able to get politically organized. But if there are only a few hundred or even a, a dozen producers, they are able to get politically organized and lobby government to maintain those regulations or make sure that the regulations have a characteristic that actually undermine competition and protect them at the expense of consumers. So just by the dynamics of concentrated benefits and diffuse costs, you tend to get situations where regulations are gonna be systematically biased and in favor of the few rather than the, the, many, the many. So uh, going back to the kind of the mechanisms of regulation and how it is that government is able to turn regulations into um, means of protecting. Uh, let, let's kind of tick through some of these and I'm going to give you a few more examples. So like I said, that they can control price, entry, quantity, operations, and purchases. So here's an example of a regulation that can control price. Uh, so when Uber first came to town about 10 years ago, uh, the DC City Council said, uh, okay, they, they proposed regulations that said Uber and other uh, ride-sharing platforms can charge no less than five times what taxis charge. And the remarkable thing about this proposed uh, regulation is that the council was actually quite open about the goal of this. They said the goal here is to make sure that Uber remains a, a luxury uh, service that doesn't compete with taxis. So they were very open, you know, we're basically just trying to protect taxis here. Now, the interesting thing in this case is um, Uber uh, consumers are pretty uh, tech savvy. And so Uber and Lyft and others were able to, to communicate this to them and suggested that they get on Twitter and Facebook and, and um, uh, even just the phone and contact the DC City Council and uh, express their, their uh, unhappiness with this. And sure enough, they did. And in, in 24 hours, uh, the City Council had more uh, contact from the public than they had ever gotten in the history of the DC uh, Council and actually rescinded the, the, the idea. But um, in many places across the country, those types of price controls did in fact go into effect and Uber was required to charge more than taxis. Uh, in most places, uh, the public reaction has been similar to DC. Um, another possibility is to control entry. Um, so, uh, an early attempt to control price was made by the uh, what's called the NRA, the National Re Recovery Administration. This was an FDR uh, um, New Deal uh, scheme. And while parts of the New Deal have been praised by economists, uh, the National Recovery Administration has been almost universally um, lambasted by economists. And the reason is it was basically a, uh, a large price fixing scheme. So this is Jacob Majid. He's a uh, immigrant tailor uh, who charged, dared to charge less than 75 cents to press a pair of pants. Um, the law said you have to charge 75 cents and if you charge less than that, you may go to jail. So uh, that was another price fixing scheme. And uh, with that and other types of regulations were uh, turned down by the Supreme Court, the government turned to other types of uh, policies that control entry. So uh, let me give you a, a few examples of that. I already mentioned the Civil Aeronautics Board. Um, Ted Kennedy, when he was president, or I'm sorry, when he was senator, 
uh, actually ran a series of hearings in the 1970s that exposed the anti-competitive effects of uh, entry controls through the Civil Aeronautics Board. Um, what he was able to show is he used uh, essentially a little bit of a quirk of our constitutional system. So C Congress has the authority to regulate interstate commerce, but not intrastate commerce. That is not commerce that is uh, within a state. So uh, in a few cases, you know, California and Texas, large states, you could have a very long intrastate route, a, a route from Los Angeles, say, to San Francisco or Sacramento that is completely unregulated. And you could have a shorter route from Los Angeles to Las Vegas that is subject to regulation because it happens to cross a state border. And what he and others were able to show through these hearings is that actually on a per mile basis, the regulated routes were twice as expensive as the non-regulated routes. And the reason is because the Civil Aeronautics Board was limiting competition in those regulated routes. Um, that actually helped lead to some of the most successful deregulations in US history. Uh, at the state level, there are plenty of other types of uh, regulations that control entry. The most famous are um, occupational licensing. So uh, to take one example, 10 states require that you have to have a license if you want to braid hair. Uh, this is very sad for my family because every day my daughter asks, Daddy, can you braid my hair? Uh, and I say, no, I'm sorry, I can't because I'm not licensed. Um, so the share of the workforce that was licensed in 1950 was about 5%. Today it's 25%. If you add in uh, both uh, federal and local licenses, it's uh, much closer to even 30%. Uh, licensing is found in well over a thousand professions, everything from cosmetologists and manicurists to coaches and florists, shampooers, landscapers, tour guides, home entertainment installers, um, uh, locksmiths, taxidermists, massage therapists. Um, let's just look at one type, one specific example, cosmetologists. So cosmetologists apply um, cosmetics to people. Uh, they are licensed in 50 states in DC. The average fees are about $142. Uh, in most states, you have to take two exams. And the big one is that you have to ha uh, have 372 days worth of training in order to become a cosmetologist. So over a year of training in order to become a cosmetologist. What's remarkable about this is if you compare it to say the burden required for an EMT, uh, it's over over 10 times the amount of training is required to become a cosmetologist as is required to become an EMT. And you find those types of mismatches all over the all over the place in um, uh, occupational licensing uh, requirements. It, it appears, this is pretty strong evidence, that the requirements have more to do with the political power of those who are lobbying for them than with keeping the public safe. Uh, so what is the evidence? What is the the uh, data on occupational licensing show? Well, it turns out that licensed workers um, earn more than unlicensed workers. It tends to depress the wages of unlicensed workers by about 10 to 15 percent. Licensing does raise prices about 3 to 16 percent. There does not seem to be a significant increase in quality. In fact, um, of those studies that find an effect of licensure on quality, uh, they are three times as likely to find that it depresses quality than that it enhances quality. Uh, and there does seem to be a disproportionate harm of licensure in terms of its effect on minorities, uh, those with prior convictions, military spouses, um, other types of minorities, for example, those for whom English is a second language um, or those who move around a lot. So 
Um, what about controlling quantity? Well, here again, we have a, a fascinating example straight from uh, the uh, the New Deal. So those of you who've, who are fans of, of John Steinbeck may be familiar with this quote. Um, he's describing the conditions in California. Uh, and what he sees is uh, these people destroying crops. So while one quarter of the country is, un is unemployed, he's seeing people come out with nets to fish for potatoes in the river and guards are holding them back. They come to rattling cars to get the dumped oranges, but the kerosene is sprayed and they stand still and watch the potatoes float by, listen to the screaming pigs being killed in a ditch and covered with quicklime, watch the mountains of oranges slop down to a putrefying ooze. And in the eyes of the people, there is a failure. And in the eyes of the hungry, there is a growing wrath. In the souls of the people, the grapes of wrath are filling and growing heavy, growing heavy for the vintage. So in the midst of this great calamity where one out of every four Americans is unemployed, you're seeing crops destroyed. Now, Steinbeck is beautiful in describing this. What he doesn't get right, however, he lets us assume that this is some sort of a, a byproduct of capitalism, that this is private people using greed to try to limit um, uh, and destroy the crops. As it turns out, all of this was enforced by government edict. So the National Industrial Recovery Act of 1933, the Agricultural Adjustment Act of 33, the Soil Conservation and Domestic Allotment Act of 36, the Market Agreement Act of 37, and the Agricultural Adjustment Act of 1938. Um, under these rules, six million baby pigs were slaughtered. A tenth of them, only one tenth of the meat was saved. Again, if you just try to limit supply, essentially this is a cartel solution where they're trying to limit supply in order to raise prices and protect producers, but not consumers. Um, 12,000 acres of tobacco were, were plowed under uh, and 25 to 50% of the cotton was destroyed in one month in 1933. All of this through government um, edict because it was a way to try to protect producers. Uh, some of that stuff is um, is among the most controversial aspects of the of the New Deal, and we don't see uh, too many regulations that are quite so blatantly uh, producer protectionist. But we do see some milder versions of this. So a few years ago, you may remember that there was a ban on incandescent light bulbs, um, and I, I remember listening to uh, Peter Overby from NPR uh, did a story on this, and he was trying to understand what what where did this ban come from, and he interviewed everybody in the production process, all the way from uh, the people on the store uh, on the floor of Home Depot that were selling these things, uh, all the way up to lobbyists at GE, and to a person, they all said that they like the ban on incandescent light bulbs. And Peter Overby ended the story and he said, oh, so I guess trying to get rid of this is just about politics. But what Peter Overby was not asking, what he should have been asking is why would a private company actually want to limit themselves? Why would they want a ban on making a product? And the answer is they wouldn't unless it gave them a competitive advantage. And as it turns out, the companies that were lobbying for a ban on the incandescent, the old, you know, simple light bulb, they wanted were, were GE and sophisticated companies that could 
had a had a comparative advantage in making the new compact fluorescent, the more sophisticated light bulb. That's because the compact fluorescent light bulb is a company is a type of product that only a few companies in the world at the time could make, whereas anybody could make an incandescent light bulb. So they lobbied for a ban on the older, easier type of technology uh, that they didn't have a comparative advantage in making as a way to try to corner the market. Um, and then finally, let's look at control um, uh, control of purchases. So a prime example here is um, all the states that require that your car be uh, inspected, both for safety and for um, um, emissions. So as it turns out, particularly on the safety, the, uh, the safety inspections, there's been a lot of research on this and the safety inspections do not uh, enhance the uh, safety of driving. So the fair, we can exploit variation in state safety laws. Uh, some states have much stricter regulations on this than others. And as it turns out, those states that with, with uh, stricter regulation of safety inspections have no uh, greater records in terms of um, uh, people getting hurt on the road. What does seem to correlate, however, is PAC contributions and the um, the uh, lobbying activities of the um, gas stations that you know are happy to have a law that requires the public to use their product and service. So one of the problems that's uh, associated with this, uh, with um, the types of regulations that that limit competition is what's known as rent seeking. So rent seeking is a very bizarre type of market. It's basically what you can think about it uh, and, and don't let the name fool you. Uh, the term rent is essentially an economist term for the profits for being a monopolist, the above normal rate of return that you get for being an exclusive producer. Um, and the basic idea with rent seeking is if you can obtain a monopoly from the government, then you are going to expend scarce time, money, and effort seeking the government's monopoly. So your efforts to try to obtain that, uh, that uh, privilege actually are wasteful. So here's one way to think about it. Imagine that I'm uh, going to, I'm a mayor of a small town and I'm going to give, give out a monopoly like this um, medallion, which entitles um, uh, the people in the town to if if I if I give out this this medallion and you obtain it, you get the a monopoly on um, taxi driving in the town. Okay, so I'm I'm going to let's say that this monopoly is worth twenty dollars, and let's imagine that I'm going to give it out to people based on how much value they can create for me as a politician. So how do you create value for a politician? Well, you can donate to their, uh, you know, his kid's private school. You can donate to his pack. You can take me out to a fancy dinner or a ball game or something like that. We'll just cut to the chase and we're going to do a bid. We're going to do an auction. We're going to auction off that medallion. Um, and the, the highest bidder gets the value of the, of the monopoly rent, which is $20 minus their bid. Um, but here's the Here's the key. Lobbying is costly. Once you take me out to dinner, once you donate to my kids, uh, you know, fancy uh, school, you can't untake un me out to dinner. You can't undonate to the school. So it's an all pay auction where whatever you bid, you you have to 
you have to uh, forfeit that bid no matter what, whether you win or not. If you do win, you get the $20 minus the bid. So uh, if this, if we were all face to face, I'd actually do this exercise. I'd, I'd bid, I'd have uh, pull out a $20 bill and I'd bid it away. And what would happen is uh, you all would bid up to the $20. And there would probably be a couple people at the very end. You know, one is is uh, has bid nine nineteen dollars, and the other twenty dollars. And the one who's bid twenty dollars is looking at a at a net return of zero, and the one who's bid nineteen dollars is looking at a net return of negative nineteen. They have to pay nineteen. And so, what can sometimes happen is they the nineteen dollar um, bidder will be willing to actually go up to twenty one and pay more than the value of the of uh, the rent is worth because they don't want to lose. And so you can actually get this bizarre scenario where people are willing to bid more than the value of the rent is even worth. And that's because lobbying is like an all bid auction where even the losers end up having to pay. Uh, so one of the things that's happened is technological change has eroded the uh, the value of a lot of these artificially scarce resources. So as it turned out, um, when uh, through this process of um, being able to buy a monopoly from the government, the value of the of the monopoly was was what's called capitalized into the price of the asset. So if you are through this you know, little piece of government granted tin that gives you a monopoly in taxi driving in New York City. If you are able to, if it gives you a monopoly in taxi driving, then the value of that future stream of monopoly rents is actually priced into the tin. And so what happened is in 1929, I think there were about um, 20,000 uh, taxi medallions offered in New York City. And by the end of the 20th century, it was down to 15,000. There were actually fewer medallions offered over the course of the 20th century, even at, though there were a million more people in New York City. And that's because government was, was artificially restricting the, the, value, the uh, number of medallions. And as that happened, the price of a medallion actually shot up to about a million dollars a piece. So a million dollars for a price of tin. One economist has called this a transitional gains trap because the problem is um, if you want to get rid of it, some you want to listen to the economists and do something efficient and get rid of this government created monopoly. The poor person who just paid a million dollars for a piece of tin is going to fight and scratch and kick because they don't want to have their government monopoly taken away. They don't want to have just paid a million dollars for something that is going to that uh, they thought was going to entitle them to a monopoly profit. And if they if the government then deregulates and create and you know does the efficient thing, it's then worth nothing. So uh, what really has has broken the monopoly is Uber. Is a new technology comes along and essentially makes the old government uh, scheme uh, obsolete. So I mentioned earlier the Civil Aeronautics Board and Ted Kennedy's role in deregulating it. Another uh, economist who helped deregulate it was the head of the board himself. He was an economist named Alfred Kahn. He was the chair of the Civil Aeronautics Board. And one of the things that he understood was that regulation invites further regulation. And he said, you know, when I first came to the board, I, people would come to me and say control price. And so we'd control the, we'd control the price, try to try to keep it artificially high, and the result would be an artificial stimulus to entry. More people would come in. Uh, then you control entry, and the result would be an artificial stimulus to compete by offering larger commissions to travel agents, advertising, scheduling, free meals, and bigger seats. Um, and so what would happen is the complete regulator 
their response would be to limit advertising, to control scheduling to, and travel agents commissions, specify the size of the sandwiches and seats and the charge for in-flight movies. Each time the dike springs a leak, plug it with one of your fingers. And his point was that it's very, very hard to artificially control uh, a market in a way to try to try to keep it uh, uncompetitive. Even as a regulator, it's very difficult. And you know, ultimately, the regulator has to expand into all kinds of activities that they don't want to be in, which is part of the reason why you get some of the silly examples that I began the, the lecture with. Um, so what do we do? So uh, Eleanor Ostrom was the 2009 uh, no Nobel laureate uh, in economics. And I think her research and that of uh, some of her colleagues points a way to a better solution so that you can still get some of the, the goals of regulation, which is protecting consumers and uh, policing fraud without some of the uh, downsides, which is anti-competitive effects. So what she suggested is we need not think of government or governance is something provided by states alone. Families, volunteer associations, villages, and other forms of human associations all involve some form of self-governance. And she uses the term governance um, in contrast to government. And if you look uh, in actual markets, it turns out that there are all sorts of governance mechanisms that we take for granted in many cases. So uh, there's of course etiquette, um, you know, it's really remarkable, but if you think about all the opportunities for fraud, uh, think about every restaurant has in, invites an opportunity for fraud because just about every restaurant in the country allows you to eat your food first before you pay. And yet there isn't fraud. Um, in the vast majority of cases, people do not dine and, and uh, dash, right? People actually pay. And that's because of uh, etiquette. And, and other types of cultural uh, governance actually keep us from doing so. Uh, another possibility is, is liability. Uh, so this is regulation through the court system after the fact. It's not like a preemptive regulation that says, that limits a type of activity. It says if you get harmed, you can go to the courts and ask for redress of your grievances through liability. Uh, we form contracts as a way to um, police activity we do branding. So the extraordinary links that uh, organization like Coca-Cola goes to to maintain the reputation of its brand, you know, is really a testament to the fact that people are very interested in, in maintaining um, their reputations because reputation is profit. Um, uh, tipping is another uh, cultural norm that helps in ensure and uh, encourage good behavior. There's uh, crowdsourcing reviews like Angie's List, professional reviews like Consumer Reports. Um, there is bonding and insurance. Uh, so when a when a plumber says he's licensed and bonded, the licensed part is the, is him advertising that the government has vetted him, but the bonding part, in many cases, um, the government may not require a bond, but he is voluntarily posting a bond. He's saying, I've taken $10,000 and I've put it in the bank and I will surrender it if I cause $10,000 worth of damage to your to your house. Um, and in most cases, bonding actually preceded uh, government rules that required the bonding. Uh, now there's customer ratings, you know, Google reviews, uh, social media ratings. A few years ago, you, you probably know the terrible story of the, the passenger who was hauled off of a United flight and he was bloodied in the process. Terrible, terrible government service, or I'm sorry, um, uh, customer service. Well, they were regulated very quickly uh, by social media. You know, that story went viral in 
uh, a ma matter of hours. And within a matter of days, the company had apologized, offered uh, to change their policies, and offered uh, some compensation to the to the guy who was uh, treated so poorly. Um, there's also platforms like Uber and Lyft and other types of um, uh, products that bring consumers and producers together, and they do their own types of regulations, their own types of vetting. And then finally, there's things like private certification, underwriters laboratory. Uh, if you if you look at almost any electronic device in your house and you turn it upside down, you'll find a UL. And that means that a private company, um, underwriters laboratory, has vetted it and, and uh, analyzed how well it does uh, under different conditions, if you uh, if there's a surge in, a, in a, um, the electrical circuit, it, does it have a short and uh, meltdown or or uh, light on fire? And uh, those types of private governance mechanisms keep us safe uh, in uh, many ways, uh, often better, at least empirically, according to the data, than um, government regulation itself. Uh, so why don't I end there? I've talked for quite a while. I'd love to hear um, uh, some of your questions. Uh, please, please uh, feel free to challenge anything I've said. I'd, I'd be happy to uh, further explain or, to, or uh, you know, hear your different perspectives on some of this stuff. So thank you very much. Great, great. Thank you very much. Uh, very good talk. Great presentation. Um, <clears throat> We have a couple questions, I guess, first, and uh, the first couple are kind of related to what you're touching on there at the end with you know, the potential for private you know, quasi-regulators, if you will, to step in and play a role. Um, broadly, are there certain industries or certain conditions under which we might expect private regulators to emerge and work effectively, say the way that that Underwriters Laboratories has been able to do so? You know, what's What's unique about that industry that makes it that a UL can emerge there, but perhaps doesn't for something like restaurants, where we still see like, you know, by and large in most areas of the country, government health regulators, um, you know, coming around and playing the role of making sure that conditions are sanitary. Yeah. So probably the the biggest government failure, or I'm sorry, market failure argument in this area is what's known as asymmetric information. Um, and the basic problem is anytime you have a situation where one part, uh, one party to a trade has a whole lot better information uh, than the other party, then you can have um, people taken advantage of, or you can have trades happen um, people unwilling to trade or, or nervous about trading or in, engaging in mutually beneficial exchange, even though they would be better off uh, doing so. So uh, things like uh, medicine, um, uh, uh, car repair, things that are sort of technical that the average consumer may not necessarily know how to evaluate it, um, those tend to be markets where it's, uh, um, it's difficult for firms to signal that they are high quality. And so in both of those instances, though, um, it, it's both the government or the private sector may actually be able to come up with solutions. Um, but it, 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 as it works out, uh, we've tended to, to drift towards uh, private or uh, market solutions in a lot of those asymmetric information, or government solutions in a lot of those asymmetric information scenarios. Mm -hmm. Okay, it's also related to the potential for something like customer reviews uh, to serve as a check on you know, producer behavior broadly, quality in particular. Um, a question motivated by Yelp in particular, how does the potential for fraudulent reviews on something like Yelp, and I guess the question suggests there's a practice then of like 
you can pay if you've received a negative review. You could, you know, Yelp will charge you, but you could have the review removed for a fee. Um, so how does that kind of undermine the potential for customer reviews to serve as a check on quality? Yeah, so there's different views of this. Um, so let's say that I go to a uh, mechanic and I feel that I've had a bad experience. Um, I can, if, if I write the bad experience on Yelp, uh, some platforms will allow the mechanic to, to contact me and say, how can I make this right to you? And if they make it right for me, you know, they come and fix my, they fix my car properly or they give me a refund uh, on, the, on the condition that I take down my review. Now, uh, there are, is some view that this is uh, cheating, uh, you know, that essentially I'm taking down my bad review and they're getting away with it. Uh, so, and others could be duped. Uh, there's another view that says, well, actually, that's kind of what we want is we want the guy to re redress the problem. And if they have to keep buying people out, uh, you know, and and getting them to, you know, doing the right thing in order to get them to take down bad reviews, then that's not so bad. Um, ultimately, I don't really know. Um, my view is there should uh, probably be a proliferation of different types of mechanisms. Maybe Google reviews will allow that type of uh, um you know, activity where you can take down a bad review, maybe uh, Yelp won't. And ultimately, consumers should, you know, gravitate towards whatever types of review processes they want. Um, I could kind of see arguments for either side, but what I think it kind of highlights is the idea that there isn't any one right way to do this type of thing. What you really want is a competitive process where lots of different regulatory mechanisms uh, proliferate, and they also, you know, experiment. Some of them might might change their policy and say, you know, we're we're no longer going to allow uh, producers to to go to consumers and ask them to take down bad reviews if they redress their grievances. And others will say, now nah, we're actually going to maintain that policy. So you, uh, that's kind of to me the ideal is a competitive process, even among the review sites where you've got Google reviews and Yelp and um, you know Angie's List and all kinds of, of different types of mechanisms with different ways of doing it um, all competing. Okay, great. Um, another question, how can we feasibly within our current political structures get rid of some of the more harmful regulations, you know, regulations that are particularly harmful for consumers? Are the courts the best way to get some of these overturned or is a legislative process probably more fruitful? That's a great question. Um, you know, people are pursuing lots of different <laughs> options, to be honest. Um, so th there are certain court mechanisms for uh, legal mechanisms. So for example, many states have um, anti-monopoly clauses that make it illegal for the state legislature to create a monopoly. There are public interest litigation firms that are suing governments based on those anti-monopoly clauses uh, that are trying to turn overturn things, uh, certain occupational licensing rules that are that clearly have an anti-competitive uh, effect. Um, the um, in Arizona, there's a law called the Right to Earn a Living Act, which has actually created a, previously in Arizona, there was a civil right to pursue a living. Uh, and what the Right to Earn a Living Act does is it 
essentially reverses the burden of proof so that if the previously if you wanted to uh, pursue a job, you had to prove that this and the state was limiting you from doing it. You had to prove that the state was was limiting your civil right. What the Right to Earn a Living Act does is it reverses that and it says if the state wants to limit your ability to do a job, it has to affirmatively prove that its regulations um, serve the public and actually in you know in real fact increase the quality of the services um, and so that's a pretty high burden and uh, it's brand new and we'll, we'll see how it's going to work uh, but the hope is that it maybe uh, changes things and makes it a little bit easier uh, ultimately though you, you know the uh, the question is spot on because we need to recognize that it's an uphill battle politically you know concentrated benefits and diffuse costs make it so that regulations tend to serve concentrated interests and that's uh, uh, it's it's difficult. Well, I guess and to that point of the you know the the political calculus there, the concentrated benefits, the diffuse costs, um, it seems to me like and I think you would agree with this parallel that a lot of the political calculus for why we have a lot of these excessive regulations is the same as why we have a lot of protectionist trade policies um in that you know that and in that example i guess they're limiting competition you know not from you know oh other domestic providers of the same service of you know, you know taxi drivers versus uber or taxi drivers versus other but you know okay louisiana sugar producers keeping out the sugar coming in from the caribbean with the same you know concentrated benefits diffuse costs you know the the cost of the consumer you know one hundred and fifty thousand dollars per job saved but on an annual basis, it's like, oh, 30 cents more for my sugar. Right, so right. A lot of the, the effects there are kind of the, the root causes are the same. Absolutely. Uh, so, so two points here. One, the math of the of sugar is worth pointing out because it, it, it's great. Uh, it's not great, but it's, it's illustrative. So um, every year, uh, protectionism costs American consumers about $3 billion dollars in terms of uh, higher costs for uh, sugar. $3 billion divided by 311 million Americans is about $10 a person, right? So are you and I and 311 million other Americans willing to go uh, form a political action committee, lobby Congress, you know, call our legislators, uh, donate money to the, to the PAC, uh, in order to to save ourselves ten dollars, no. As it turns out, a majority of there are only seventeen sugar producing companies <laughs> in the United States, and a major a majority of those that three billion dollars is concentrated on just three companies. So th that is a highly concentrated group. And absolutely, are they willing to form a pack, lobby Congress? Uh, you better believe it. A hundred percent. So, you know, that kind of just shows you just a just quick uh, back of the envelope uh, calculation of what's going on there. The other thing to point out here, and I think the parallel is right, is a metaphor that um, University of, uh, Clemson University economist Bruce Yandel uh, has advanced. It's called the bootlegger and Baptist theory of regulation. And what he's referring to is he illustrates this with the with uh, blue laws in the South. They're mostly in the South. There, there are a few other places in the country too. But these are laws that restrict the sale of alcohol on Sunday. Um, and his point is that these laws exist because of a coalition of what he calls bootleggers and Baptists. So Baptists are those who 
are, you know, religiously motivated or perhaps, um, they, you know, they don't actually have to be literally Baptist, but they are people who want to limit the sale of alcohol for a good cause, uh, for the sake of, um, you know, stamping out sin. And ironically, these laws are also supported by bootleggers. And the reason is they are happy to have one day a week where they don't have to compete. One day a week where it's illegal to, to where, uh, you know, legitimate sale of alcohol is illegal and so therefore the bootleggers have free reign. And what he's, uh, his point is that in almost any regulation that you see, there is often a Baptist rationale and there's often a real bootlegger, uh, uh, you know, background real reason for why the regulation exists. So, you know, in, in the case of protectionism, the, ba the Baptist rationale is, uh, creating jobs in the United States and boosting the uh, American economy. The real bootlegger rationale is that while special interests want protection from competition, even, even if it does uh, end up harming consumers. And so almost any regulation you can find, you'll, you'll see both bootlegger and Baptist uh, kind of dynamics at play. Okay, great. Um, <clears throat> another issue, and you kind of touched at various points in the talk about your kind of product quality and clearly there's a lot of issues related to product quality within these discussions of regulations. Um, but I see kind of two different ways. On the one hand, you know, a regulator could be essentially mandating product quality within a certain range, like, hey, we have to meet these certain quality standards, right? Um, but distinct and separate from that, in highly regulated industries and using the, you know, pre-deregulation airline industry as an example, <clears throat> once they were regulating other things, then as you pointed out, really the only way for firms to compete is on that quality dimension. And it can lead to kind of firms choosing, and again, I think the airlines would provide a good example of this. You know, back in the day, you know, before I was even old enough to have ever flown, you know, but I've seen pictures and heard stories of, oh, your meals were served on actual China and, you know, actual glasses and, you know, right more room in the seats and now post deregulation we're cramming more people in and we're just giving them you know sandwiches wrapped in paper or whatever um but it seems like that that competition at least in that example i would say gave us product quality above and beyond the level that consumers would actually demand or want if they had to be That's paying right. for the quality themselves and i guess a, my question is in practice do regulators ever really concede that higher quality is not always better and if so, are there specific yeah. examples you can point to where they kind of recognize that fact and hey, in the consumer interest, we're intentionally going to, to structure things in a way where we don't get this you know, positional arms race in terms of quality. Yeah, that's great. Yeah, so essentially if you have, if the price is artificially high and you have to find some way to compete, you'll tend to compete over quality. And so you do sometimes see that there's higher quality in some cases. Um, in a, in highly regulated industries. And, and your point is absolutely right. It's, it can be a higher quality than people want. So, you know, if you look, of course, across um, industries, you'll see that firms uh, offer a wide variety of qualities and sometimes consumers prefer lower quality. Um, there would be no such thing as uh, paper uh, plates if people didn't sometimes prefer lower quality. There'd be no such thing as a used car market if people didn't sometimes prefer lower quality because it means lower prices as well. Uh, so let me just give you two two quick examples of, of, of this. So uh, one, to directly answer your question, I think do, regulators do sometimes concede this and the Civil Aeronautics Board is a perfect example because uh, Alfred Kahn deregulated his own agency. 
you know, he basically ran experiments where he allowed firms to um, charge lower prices and where he he refused to regulate the size of sandwich and the and the size of uh, seats. And it led to deregulation. And it what it has done is it's it's democratized travel. Travel is not as luxurious as it used to be, but on a per mile basis, it's about half as expensive as it once was. And that's why, you know, you look at the numbers, they're staggering. Uh, in 1970, uh, a minority of people had ever flown on a plane in their lifetime. And uh, 2020 is a weird year. Let's take 2019. In 2019, the average person had flown in the last 12 months. I mean, it's a really ext extraordinary. Um, so the, the other example I'd give, though, uh, of, of unintended consequences of how this can work out is uh, regulation of electricians. Uh, you know, uh, the, the rationale here is saving people from harming themselves. It's a, I can think of almost no better rationale than keeping people from dying, right? But as it turns out, the states that regulate uh, uh, the licensure of electricians more heavily, not only are, are the prices of electricians more expensive, but as a result of that, there are people actually are more inclined to use to do do it themselves. You have people like me trying to change outlets when I have no business doing that. And there was actually some studies in the set uh, back um, when there was greater variation across this a few decades ago, where they found that there was higher rates of electrocutions in states where there were where there was a higher regulate uh, regulatory burdens of electricians and and prices were higher so it's a it's a, sometimes higher quality is not necessarily a good thing for consumers great that geez that electrician example is kind of very interesting and <laughs> yeah kind of can bring some of the perverse effects uh, or unintended unintended consequences home in a dramatic way right matt thanks again for your time really enjoyed the presentation thank you to everybody thanks so much Thank you for listening to the Bagwell Center podcast. For more content like this, please be sure to subscribe. And for more information about the Bagwell Center and its programs, please visit us online at coles.kennesaw.edu econop.